standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. This week I'm chatting to Marianne Shine, an actor, therapist and former model and a contributor to new Sky documentary series Scouting for Girls, Fashion's Darkest Secret, which started on June the 24th. The three-part documentary reveals how a group of men behind the world's most successful modelling agencies created a culture of control, coercion and abuse of models as young as 15 and builds on an ongoing investigation by Guardian journalist Lucy Osborne. Marianne joined me to talk about her experience in Paris as a young woman at Karen's and Prestige modelling agencies and about how the fashion industry creates a culture where abuse can thrive. A trigger warning here, Marianne's account does touch on some difficult subjects including sexual assault and rape. So if that's something you can't listen to today, you might want to turn off now. And if you have been affected by any of the issues raised, visit rapecrisis.org.uk for more information on where you can get help and support. This is a really important subject and one that many women of Marianne's generation of models have been waiting to shine a light on. I hope it rightly makes you mad as hell and I hope that you find it an interesting listen too. I'm joined by Marianne Shine, actress, therapist and former model, also contributor to a new three-part series coming to Sky Documentaries on the 24th of June, Scouting for Girls, Fashion's Darkest Secret. Hi Marianne, how are you? Hi Jen, I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're here to talk to me about the documentary, which I'll just give a little bit of background. It's about a a situation that transpired in the the 90s about a group of men behind some of the world's leading modelling agencies who were able to create a culture which enabled them to groom, coerce and abuse girls as young as 15. Marianne, you're one of the contributors to the series, as I said. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about what happened to you? So I got involved with the documentary because my brother and I, we both read The Guardian, and he came across uh, Lucy Osborne's article in October 2020 about Jared Marie and the predatory culture in the Parisian model modeling world. And I was so touched and moved by her writing and her story that I reached out to her via email. But I actually did not see her response for like four months because I went into my spam folder. And then she tried again. She was tenacious and she eventually reached me in January of 2021. So that's how I got involved with the um, docu-series. So I had graduated from um, college and I was about to go to grad school. And um, it's a funny story, but I won't take up time with it now. But my dad somehow gotten picked up some gentleman on, on a rainy day in the city of New York and who's looking for a cab and they exchanged business cards. And this man turned out to be a high fashion photographer and in exchange for giving him a ride. He said, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll meet with your daughter. Um, Cause my dad thought I was beautiful and he wanted me to be a model. And the man said he would tell in five seconds if I had a chance. And long story short, I met with this photographer named Mitchell Gray. And he said, wow, I, I didn't think you'd be so tall and blonde. And in the eighties, that was the criteria. You had to be thin, tall, blonde, and I fit it fine. And um, I realized that scooping ice cream at Haagen-Dazs was not going to bring up the uh, money I needed for grad school. So I thought, well, let's try modeling for a year or two and save that money and then go back to school. So that's what I did. I, I did a test shoot with uh, Mitchell, um, got about a dozen different looks and um, there were fabulous photos and 
brought them around town and went to a Ford agency. And I was told to start at a smaller agency and go maybe go to Europe. And that's how I ended up in France. I found um, a small agency in New York called Legends and Mannequin. And I was also waitressing on the side and I got scouted by a man who said, I have a connection in Paris. And I double checked with my agent and she got all excited. Her name was Kay Mitchell. And she said, we don't have any connections in Paris. We have a lot in Spain and Italy, but um, that would be great if you could get your foot in the door. That would be the beginning of a great relationship. So I went to Paris and met Claude Haddad, who ran Prestige. And my very first day I met him, he brought me into his office and he was so excited to meet me. And um, I felt on top of the world. I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm in Paris. This is great. And he said, okay, take your shirt off, take your clothes off. I need to see your body and inspect you for scars. And I was just, that was day one, literally day one. And I was so surprised, so shocked. And I was like, why? And he said, I just want to make sure you don't have fake breasts, that fake breasts leave behind. I'm like, well, I can assure you they're real. And he said, no, I need to see them. And I was almost shamed for not ripping my shirt off right away and saying, here they are, here are my girls. And he was sort of put off that I stood up for myself. And he called in a booking agent who was a female and she seemed really put out. She was like rolling her eyes and she couldn't believe that I had to like ruin her day by having her look at me to inspect me. But that was the beginning and getting very confused, not understanding that I was this commodity that they could just handle and tell what to do. And I wasn't supposed to speak up. I was supposed to just go along with it. This is probably a stupid question, but for me, I, you know, I'm not a fashion model and, you know, most of our listeners won't be. I presume that that is not a legitimate thing to be asked to do. It didn't happen in the agency I worked at in New York, but maybe there are different rules in France. And it turned out there were. And I think that's what's revealed in the documentary because it shows it's in the 80s and 90s in particular, that these young girls who traveled abroad as models, we didn't have working papers. We were at the complete mercy of the agency to manage all our connections and affairs. There was a certain type of sexual expectations that were normalized. And the industry really was a front to feed the lusty desires of pedophiles and sex addicts. Like sex was used as a weapon. It was a form of psychological warfare against the young models and their careers. Like we were being exploited physically and emotionally by these master manipulators who said, Oh, you know, I'll make your career for you. And then they could in one phone call, take it all away. If we didn't put out, it was just assumed that that's how it was over there. And if we spoke up, like if I complained, um, Oh, this photographer was wanting sex afterwards or was fondling me or, even bought Haddad one time and it was in front of two or two clients and somebody else from the agency. And he literally grabbed my turtleneck here and pulled it down to show my breasts and lifted my skirt up and smacked me on the bottom and spun me around. And he just said, you know, this is what sexy is like. Like he wanted me to look more sexy. And I was just so insulted how he grabbed me and it was considered normal. And if I complained, I was just, you know, a stiff American. or I don't even know what they called me, but it wasn't looked upon favorably. In fact, at one point, uh, sorry, Claude uh, pulled me aside and he said, oh, you're not like the 16-year-olds that I can manipulate. They adore me and they look up to me. 
and um, I can't manipulate you that way. So that's why I don't invite you out to the dinners. Um, and then he called me a motherfucker. And I said, where I come from, that's a really impolite thing to call people. And he was just like, ah, you, you know, you think for yourself, I can't control you anymore. So the situation did obviously escalate with you and with other girls who were at these agencies. And some of the girls, including yourself, were sexually assaulted and some of them were, were raped by these men. Are these guys, are they anomalies or is this sort of like a problem that is endemic within the industry or was at the time, perhaps? From my point of view, at that time, I thought it was unique to me. There was no cell phones. There was no internet. Um, there was no communication with other people. Like, oh, I've had, I'm having this issue with my boss. And I remember complaining to one of the models when I was at Prestige. Her name was Mimi. And, um, and she said, oh, my God, that's happening to me, too. So we started finding out that he was doing this to other people. And then Claude found out that we were talking about him. And he said to me, stay away from her. She's bad influence on you. And then he told Mimi the same thing. So he tried to divide us. Eventually, I ended up leaving that agency. I made some lie about how I was trying to open a bank account and I needed my passport back. And so they gave it to me and then I left and I went to Karen's, which is where Jean-Luc Brunel worked. And I thought I was going to a much better, more appropriate agency. And I walked right out of the pan into the fire, into the lair of uh, Jean-Luc. I had no idea that he was even worse than Claude. You, your question was like, was it really endemic in the entire industry? My experience was I didn't know this was happening, but it turned out that, yes, there were certain men running these agencies like Gerard Marie at Elite, Jean-Luc Brunel at Karen's, and Claude Haddad at Prestige, who ran an industry of young, beautiful girls um, and then giving them to businessmen and, and taking advantage of them themselves as well. I wanted to ask you about something you said just then about how they had your passport. Why would they have your passport? Because in modern society, we would consider that modern slavery, basically. If your passport is taken away from you and you're not, you are not at liberty to leave, mm -hmm. in, in the modern world, that would be considered modern slavery. Do you think anything about that kind of rings true? Absolutely. I think it is true because... There was a big piece of this industry where models would show up and you would start doing go-sees, build your book with terror sheets, and then you would say, okay, where, where's my money? Like, I'm doing these jobs. And they said, oh, you have to pay us back for your plane ticket. Oh, you have to pay us back for your headshots and your comp cards and your rent if you're renting a model apartment. And you're like, excuse me, what? None of this was laid out ahead of time and you're like, excuse me what and so you start off in debt before you even realize it and they're not clear about this so the american agencies were sending us um over there i mean so many women i've talked to this happened to and then you become sort of an indentured servant you can't leave until you pay off your debts so they make you take all these crazy jobs and you just do them because you want to you know you want to get free and clear of them I mean, that is exactly what traffickers do with women, you know, women who are forced to work in the sex industry. That is 
exactly what traffickers would do. They would take women out of countries where they were, you know, promise them a, a, a better life or whatever, and then send them over to wherever it is, Germany, Italy, the UK perhaps, and make mm. them work to pay off the debts incurred from being taken out of that country and, and sent somewhere else. So that is literally what you're describing to me now. So you were sent by American agencies to Europe. Do you think the agencies knew, you know, the situation that they were sending you into? Some of the agents did find out and they stopped doing it. But for the most part, they knew that, oh, if you got a model apartment, you're going to have to pay for it. And they were making money hand over fist. They would have like a one or two bedroom apartment and squeeze six girls into it and then charge everybody like 2000 francs a month. It's just crazy money. Yes. I do believe that some of the American agencies did know, but there was also another level that was crazy too, that some of the girls we sent over and they would be housed in the actual apartment of the agent, whether it was Jared Marie or Jean-Luc Prunel, they would be in their house, in their apartments and they would get assaulted there. In my case, when I went to Karen's, um, they had a smaller division called Best One, run by a woman, and her name was Menu. And I started working. My first job was like in the Eiffel Tower, and it was just so exciting and so much fun. And then I got sent back. I did a fashion show in Berlin. I was like really working, and then I got sent back to New York to do a fashion show, where I got assaulted by the guy, the designer. Um, and then when I came back to Paris, my agency was closed down. And so it had happened when I was gone and was only gone for a week. And when I came back, Karen's had absorbed all the girls and I showed up and Jean-Luc was like, oh no, we took all the girls already. We can't take any more. Um, come back next week. And so I came back the next week and he goes, okay, you're not, you're not thin enough. You need to lose more weight. So this went on for like three weeks and I'm just desperate to try to work again. And he finally let me back in. And so at this point he knew he had me because I was like so desperate. And so he said, oh, come, what are you doing tonight? And I said, nothing. And he said, I'll pick you up. And he picked me up in a limo and he took me to a Sade concert and out to dinner. And next thing I knew I was in the inner circle of the elite models where I was being wined and dined and, and then eventually invited to his apartment to his private parties where he had loads of girls come with these older businessmen. And I remember one night he had a bunch of girls come over and he wanted us all to cuddle with him on the bed while we watched a video of him being interviewed. This is the day of the VHS tape. He had like a copy, he put it in the TV um, and he had a huge TV, which was, wow. I've never seen anything like that before on the satin sheets on the bed. And I refused to sit on the bed. It just felt like, this is wrong. He's my boss. So I sat on the floor with a couple of other girls, but the majority, he was cuddled with this harem of girls watching this video. Um, and uh, this was considered normal to do with your boss. So one of the things that you described to me before is something that is, I guess, quite a common theme in abusers and, and in the industries where abuse kind of thrives, I guess, in this way. So, for example, we had a big scandal in the UK 
not very long ago about football coaches, a, a, a specific football coach and then some other football coaches who abused the young boys who are playing for them in their in their youth academies. And one of one of the most famous examples would be Harvey Weinstein in, in the film industry. And and the thing that people say and, and, and what you said there as well, the the really common thing that people come back to is that these people have so much power over you. They have so much power and control over your career and, and the success that you may or may not have in it. Do you think there's anything else that makes fashion in particular an industry where it's possible for abusers to thrive in the way that that they do or have done? Yeah, that's a really good question. Fashion industry is completely unregulated. Um, there's no limit on the number of working hours. You can be underage, a young 15-year-old of some type, and working all hours. Whereas in the film industry, especially in the States here, kids in film and TV, they have tutors on set. They have very specific working hours. They get breaks. They get actual food. Models don't get that. We don't have the same rights. And in Europe, it was even way looser. And we didn't get have any working papers to be in that country. We didn't have any visas that said, yes, you can work here. Mm. So we were under the property, so to speak, of the of the agency. We were under the aegis of them to say, okay, we'll, we'll take care of all the paperwork, we'll pay your taxes, we'll take our 10 or 20%. Um, but they actually took so much more. I remember one day I was on the set, um, it was for a catalog company, and they were selling bed sheets, and I had to pretend to be asleep in this bed. And I was like, wow, we're, this really takes a lot of skill. <laughs> and on break, I was talking with the art director and I said, what do you do? And he goes, oh, I work for this publicité, this company. And I found out about the world of advertising. I didn't even know that people sat around coming up with concepts and ideas. And hmm. um, at some point he gave me a receipt for the day, like a voucher with a receipt. And normally I wouldn't see those. It would go directly. I would have something that they would sign, but I wouldn't see the actual numbers on there. They would just sign off saying, yeah, she showed up from this hour to this hour. And then that would go back to my agency. But he gave me this printout of what the job cost and how much I was supposed to get paid. And I remember, let's say it was 2,000 francs. I got like 200 francs out of it. And I said, wait, I saw that. What happened to it? And the business office people were outraged. They're like, you're not supposed to see that. They shouldn't have given it to you. We always take our percentage out. But, you know, we, we cover everything for you, baby. We do everything for you, dear. And I was like, but this is how much they thought they were paying me. And you're taking way more than 10%. You're taking 90% or 80%. This is crazy. And they did not like that I found that out. And then there was a models union and I was going to join it. And we were told that if we, if we joined a models union, we'd be immediately fired. So we're at their mercy. We hear a lot about Me Too movements in different industries, for example, the film industry, the music industry, etc., etc. And And I think that we, until now, have not heard so much about what's been going on in the fashion industry. I wondered if you think there has been enough focus on the fashion industry. This is um, a really interesting angle because people people's views or opinions on the, on a model, I, um, 
I think there's a certain jealous stigma that accompanies modeling. Like we fit a specific criteria. As I said earlier, the 80s and 90s, there was no plus size dove models. Uh, You had to be really thin, tall, blonde. Blonde would be even better, right? Um, People think of modeling as it's all glamour and fun, but it's a super stressful way to make a career. It's very competitive. There's a really short window for most folks, and then you age out quickly. Or if you change your looks in any way, um, your skin has a bad skin day or you get a bad haircut or you add some weight, it'll cost you. You use your career. And this uh, misunderstanding of how hard it is to achieve success in this industry is is really overlooked. And I think it's hard to get sympathy because people think we are this elite, special, privileged group. And so there's a lot of envy around this, like, oh, what do you guys know? And you're subjecting yourself to being sexualized. And I believe that that's created a problem where people do not take the harassment and the sexual exploitation seriously. There's one industry that has succeeded in gaining recognition in this new movement. And I think it's the Olympic gymnastics industry where those girls, right, very rigorously trained. um, They are an elite prestigious program that very few people can ever enter as well. But the general public don't seem to give them such a hard time about it. So like, oh, these are, you know, elite athletes. And now these models were able to put this horrible man, um, Nasser, in jail um, uh, for his indiscretions and assaults that he did to these young girls. Uh, And that's very satisfying to hear that, you know, finally some perpetrator was actually caught and dealt with. You kind of touched on it there, but I guess like, do you, do you think that there is almost a perception among people that because as a model you are objectified like that's sort of your job right your your job is basically to to look nice and be objectified in in, in a way and i guess you could argue that to a degree about actors you could argue it to a degree about singers but not in the same way as you can about models so do you think that there is uh, there's been less sympathy because there is almost a perception that like wow I mean you knew what you were signing up to Exactly yes I think there is that piece that's sort of well what do you expect I mean you're wearing something scantily clad and you're going to a club of course you're asking for it I think the 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 girls being exploited um the sexual assaults that they would complain about were dismissed or even normalized, which is even worse. It's like, oh, yes, of course, that's part of the deal. If you kept quiet and you played the game, then you would be rewarded and you would be given jobs. If you spoke up or rejected someone, you would lose those jobs or you would be out on the street. I mean, that's what happened to me. In the documentary, uh, I was supposed to be maybe just in one show and I ended up, I was in all three. And in the last one, I'm with my mom in the documentary. And there's one part where um, my mom knew that my story, but she didn't know the details of the story. And that happened um, on film, which is, it was really heartbreaking to see how it affected her. And after the camera stopped rolling, she looked at me and she said, you know, Marianne, you are so lucky that you were fired by Jean-Luc. And I said, really, why would you say that? And she said, because you were released from that servitude like you didn't have to be in that system anymore he gave that was a gift and I never looked at it that way I always looked at it as I had failed in some way and she said no you you were released and luckily I had a home to go come home to a lot of the girls run away from home 
and use modeling as an option and they have nowhere else to go. So they keep going back to their perpetrator. So I wanted to ask you about Jean-Luc Brunel because he was eventually imprisoned, but unfortunately he was not actually ever brought to justice. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I, I believe he was eventually imprisoned because of his connections to a very notorious trafficker of women, Jeffrey Epstein. Exactly, yes. December of 2020, after I'd already um, read uh, Lucy's articles and stuff, December 2020, um, I woke to a message from her and she says, great news, <laughs> you want to probably hear, learn about this. And I found out that Jean-Luc was arrested in connection with stuff that he was doing with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, but also s several people had come forward who were former models who had said that they had been um, sexually assaulted by him. And when I heard that, I said, ah, it's really going to happen now. He's really going to get his just desserts because this happened to me in the 80s. 60 Minutes came out with an incredible expose with Diane Sawyer revealing um, the industry and all the underhanded stuff that was going on. And then it got completely shut down. You can't see that documentary. There was a gag order put on it. And then again, many years later, the BBC did an incredible piece of investigative journalism on this and it got shut down. And so now John Luke was able to go happily along his merry way, continuing to run the Paris agency. And then he opened one in New York and he opened one in Florida that was uh, completely funded by Jeffrey Epstein. And what he was doing was using these modeling agencies as fronts, but really bringing young, innocent girls from other countries over. He didn't use American girls in America. He used girls from Eastern Bloc countries, brought them over here, made them completely helpless at, at his mercy. And then somehow they were sent over to Jeffrey. It was horrible. Um, and so he got away with it for years. And finally, when he got arrested, I was so excited. Like, okay, now there's a reason I have to speak out. This is really going to happen now with the help of this documentary we thought we were going to get more women to come forward to say that they had been suffered under the hands of Jean-Luc and then when we found out he died in February it was it made me so angry so frustrated because I was hopeful for justice in a way I feel like the authorities should have known that you know what happened with Jeffrey Epstein you know not to wait but they were just delaying and delaying and um they did nothing. And then Jolene Maxwell, her court case came and they found her completely at, at fault as well. It was such a missed opportunity with Jean-Luc. It really was. Just to be clear, Jean-Luc is thought, as as with Jeffrey Epstein, Jean-Luc is thought to have killed himself while awaiting trial. I mean, you've touched on it there. You've said how angry you felt. How How do you feel knowing that you can never get justice from him for what has happened and and how are you dealing with that because you're involved in in other things aren't you in, in other yeah. kind of campaigns it, let's say he did take his own life and we just, just say that's how he died mm. to me that's an admission of guilt so then he's admitting it in his own creepy way i mean he was considered he had a nickname of the ghost he would not grant interviews he was very um slippery he did not want to um it be seen and he didn't want to be associated with anything. I think he visited Jeffrey Epstein in jail like 67 times or something crazy. Wow. And then he still started to say, no, I had nothing to do with him. Like he just wanted to be mm. left alone. And by him dying, maybe he felt like he was getting the last word, but in 
my feeling of it, it's, a, it's an admission of guilt. And it shows that he probably was petrified. He probably had lots of names of men that he supplied girls to that didn't want him to reveal that in court. And the life as he knew it was over for him. I mean, the situation has improved in recent years, hasn't it? Can you tell me a little bit about what's what's going on now to protect young women in the industry in the way that you, you weren't sadly protected? The Model Alliance is working hard to change um, policy by creating new codes of conduct to have regulations in the industry. And if there was such a thing in place when I was modeling, I may have had a, a longer career. But we owe it to the generations that came before us and after us to the women and the girls who suffered um, during a time when sexual abuse was normalized or just part of the deal of being a model, where these rich and powerful men were conspiring together to manipulate our careers by exploiting us. Um, we had no support. So with the businesses like the Model Alliance and Sarah Ziff um, really speaking on behalf of models, men and women alike, who are being abused and mishandled, they have a place to go to and get help and get support. And hopefully we can actually create policy that changes. And right now they passed um, a law in New York State that they've extended, I think, for the next year that if you were a model um, 30 years ago that um, had anything happen to you when you were underage, you can come forward now and file. Hopefully people will feel empowered to do that i wanted to ask you marianne if you had your time again would you still have gone into the modeling industry Mm. Mm. i think if i had my time again with what i know now i would have been much more transparent and vocal um i didn't tell my family i had i had um an aunt and uncle that lived over there, I blamed myself. There was no internet. There was no cell phones. The information took longer to get across. I remember at one point, I was very emboldened at this point. This is before I got raped by Jean-Luc, but I was walking through part of Paris and this man came up to me and he said, oh, you're so beautiful and I'm a scout and you should be a model one day. And I said, who do you work for? And he said, oh, I work for... Claude Haddad at Prestige. I said, well, he's um, a monster and I will never work for him again. And you should not work for him. You shouldn't be scouting girls to go into his lion's den because he's a monster. And he said, I had no idea. And he said, I can make some money on the side by finding girls off the street. So that's how these men work. They would have scouts. I got scouted in New York by somebody for him. That that's They would just constantly find young pretty girls and bring them into the system. Mm-hmm. And I told this man, I said, this is wrong. And he actually felt bad about it. He said, I had no idea. I thought it was, you know, a fun thing to become a model. I said, no, these men are taking advantage of us. I wish it was more widely known back then. It's it's really hard because there's still, it's so unregulated and so many girls look at it and and boys too want to think it's a quick way to make money. And they think that they're going to be discovered and they have what it takes and they think they can handle it. It's really not the case. And people are trying to make money off them by having modeling schools. There's really, there really needs to be some form of regulation and accountability to make it safe. Just like all other industries have that. There's like an HR department in most companies that make sure things are handled a certain way. It's, It's not like that in modeling at all. How do you feel about your experience now? Does it, you know, to, to what extent, 
do you feel that it still impacts on your life? Well, first I just pushed it down, didn't want to talk about it. And then I went into a deep depression, but back in 86, 87, nobody used that word. Didn't even, depression wasn't thrown around. And it's, I started this journey of trying to figure out like what's going on. I remember I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I couldn't go to sleep at night. And my mom being this tough Scandinavian lady, literally just said, I found you a job at a uh, travel agency in New York. You're going to answer the phones. Like she worked in travel. So she got me this job and I was answering phones and making coffee. And, you know, it was some way to come back into the land of the living again. It got me up every day, got me on the train to commute in. And then I slowly crawled out of the dark pit and went to a therapist and start talking about it. Then I told my boyfriend who then became my husband. And then we actually went back to Paris in 88. This was after the doc, uh, the 60 minute documentary came out. Um, and I went back to the agency to see if they had any of my money left. It had been like a year and a half later and they didn't. They said, oh, your money's been taken. You owed us, whatever, which wasn't true. Again, like I said, but I had no leg to stand on. But I took this man, you know, as my witness to see the nightclubs I went to, to meet uh, former models that I worked with, just to have an eyewitness of my experience. And then I said, okay, now I'm done. I've done this ritual. I'm, I'm going to shut it down. And then like six years later, I started writing about it. I could not stop. I wrote a screenplay, a stage play, short stories, everything. And then I just put them in a drawer. And... At some point, I started to do therapy on it again, and I realized I was having difficulty sleeping at night because this happened to me at night when I got raped. I was deep asleep, and then I woke up with him on top of me, Jean-Luc, on top of me. And um, so if my husband was out traveling and stuff, I would have a real difficult time sleeping alone at night. And so I had to do therapy around it, and then I found out about this technique called EMDR where it helps you reprocess trauma memories and I became very engaged with, wow, how healing and helpful this was. I would like to be able to heal and help others too. And then I found out about, I love acting and theater and, and improv, that there's something called drama therapy. So I was able to merge these two worlds together as a form of healing. And I went back to school. I went to graduate school and I became a drama therapist. And so now I give back. I heal. I try to be a wounded healer. And I have my own private practice where I work with people um, we're going through transitions in their lives. And I also work at San Quentin prison, um, teaching Shakespeare behind bars, uh, as a form of healing. So that's how it shows up in my life now. It's a form of giving back and creating change, creating action. <clears throat> I think it's important to review these old, these older stories from the eighties and nineties, because it's affecting how the industry is now. And then, because these, it's safe for us to talk about it now. It's not affecting my career as a model now. I can do it. There are women out there right now that stuff like this is happening to them. Um, it's not just in the modeling, but even in the the entire part of the fashion world where they're making the clothes. The women who are, who are in these third world countries making the clothing are being put in extreme circumstances. And so there really needs to be a light that shines on the entire industry to create change. And I'm dealing with, with people who are injured on in some level on the other side of it, but I'd like to get into the work and have the change happen before the injury happens. Marianne, thank you so much. Do you have any social media or, or places where we can follow you and, and keep up to date with your story? That's a nice question. Yes. Shine through therapy, like sunshine, shine through therapy.com is my Instagram. 
Twitter, it's um, Marianne underscore Shine. YouTube is Neanna Shine. I would love to make it possible for women if they need to reach out to me or to Lucy Osborne, if they've had something similar happen to them and they've been too afraid to come forward with their story, to f- that we'll listen to you. It's important that your story is heard, especially if one of the perpetrators is still out there, still working in the modeling industry or is still around, or there's also photographers and makeup artists and clothing designers. Like We need to surely shine a light on these dark places that have been in the shadows for too long. Marianne, thank you so much for talking to me about a a really horrible subject. And, you know, I think it's incredible that you're able to use your experience and try and turn it around and help other women who've been through what you've been through. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk Mm -hmm. to me. And thank you for spreading the word. It's wonderful, Jen. Scouting for Girls, Fashion's Darkest Secrets is on Sky Documentaries starting on the 24th of June. Standard Issue for All Women.